0: our Scripture reading this evening from Paul's letter to the Romans, where we continue to study this evening in Romans chapter 4, and we're reading verse 13 through verse 17. Romans chapter 4, and from verse 13 through verse 17 this evening. As Paul has been Expounding what he calls twice in this letter, my gospel. Questions have arisen about that gospel from uh, at least one and perhaps two sources in his mind, and he has been showing how the gospel that he preaches is, in fact, the gospel of the grace of God that was revealed in promise form to the forefather Abraham. there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations." in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Now let's, as we turn to God's Word, turn to the Lord and ask him for his help and illumination as we study it together. Gracious Heavenly Father, you have given this Word to us through our Lord Jesus Christ, and by the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the life of your apostle. We thank you that our Lord Jesus taught him in order that we might be taught through him by our Lord Jesus. And so we pray that you would turn our minds to your truth and illumine them by it, that you would touch our affections, that they may be inflamed with love for him who speaks to us, we pray that You would come and bend our stubborn wills, that with all our beings we may be yielded to You, and that as we prepare and are prepared by Your Word to come to Your table, that we may more and more hunger and thirst for that moment when the signs of Christ's death for us are given to us in the presence of Of him who now is with us, speaks to us, and is present at the table. So come, Lord, we are your guests, and we pray that you would instruct us as our host. And we pray this in Jesus Christ's great name. Amen. Well, as we come to the Lord's table this evening, we are reminded, as we often are at the Lord's table, that the gospel in this way, when the Word and the visible sign are joined together, the gospel touches really all of our senses. We are here in order to listen through our ears, to see with our eyes, to touch with our hands, to smell with our noses, to taste with our lips the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is almost as though God in His mercy were pressing upon us through every access gate of entry into our lives. What a privilege we have in knowing and loving and serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we look at these few verses together this evening, I want, as it were, to take this Word and to place it on your tongue's and into your hearts, remember how Paul will later say that the word of the gospel is not far from you, it's being, it's being placed in your mouth, and that the taste of the gospel that we find here in the Scriptures will enliven our taste buds for the Lord Jesus Christ and for these moments of wonderful communion that we are able to enjoy with Him this, this evening. Paul, of course, has brought us to the very heart of his gospel in chapter 3, the way in which the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, the way in which we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ who has become the propitiation for our sins, and in whose shed blood we may be justified. That is the heart of Paul's gospel. It's the heart of the New Testament. It is also the heart of the whole Bible. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the saving power of God, He has said in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, for all who believe in Him, both for the Jew and for the Gentile. And one of the things that emerges very clearly in Romans, and it's already emerged, and we will see it emerging again and again towards the end of the letter, is that this gospel that Paul preaches has been resisted. And of all men, he understood resistance to the gospel. Indeed, in so many ways, he is, has he is been ideally framed and fitted by God to write this gospel letter because he once was on the other side of the gospel. He once sat in synagogues listening to the early Christians in Jerusalem speak about the gospel and reason for the gospel from the pages of the old testament scriptures and i assume there wasn't a there wasn't a single objection to the gospel of jesus christ that the apostle paul was unfamiliar with or that he had never himself used and so objections to the gospel and objections to his preaching of it must have sometimes made him smile as he as he looked to the Holy Spirit to work in in those Jewish friends to whom he spoke the gospel, knowing that this gospel had once broken into his life, and none of these arguments that were being used, none of these objections would be powerful enough if the Holy Spirit moved in irresistible grace and brought one of his fellow kinsmen to faith, in jesus christ but there's also in romans as, as you know from reading through romans there's not only this very this very direct objection to paul's gospel that he is confronting but as he writes to the christians in rome he realizes that there are others around the early christian church those who have not fully grasped the liberty the gospel gives, who rather hold the view. Think of his letter to the Galatians. Think of what he says in Philippians chapter 3. Jewish people who are convinced that if somebody is going to really be a follower of Jesus the Messiah, then they must be circumcised. They must keep the Mosaic law they must be brought into the tradition. And we will find much later on in Romans how that kind of discomfort with Paul's free gospel was already present in the Christian church at Rome and indeed causing certain divisions. It looks as though they were between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. And so what he has to say here about Abraham not only deals with those basic objections of non-believing Jews, but also the failure to grasp the fullness and freeness of the gospel that has come in Jesus Christ by those who were part and parcel of the early Christian church. And Paul's gospel really did present an enormous challenge to his contemporaries. And this arises very obviously, as we've seen at the end of chapter 3. Do you mean to say, Paul, the questioner is saying, do you mean to say that after all the blessings we have had, we Jews have got nothing to boast about as Jews? by what kind of law do you say this? And are you really saying, Paul, that God is not only the God of the Jews but in exactly the same way the God of the Gentiles? And aren't you therefore overturning our greatest and highest privilege that we have been given Torah, that we are the people of the law, and that there are no other people who have the law? Are you simply sweeping all these things away? And in chapter 3, verses 27 through 31, Paul had given very simple answers. Usually a wise thing to do, incidentally, if you can. He'd given very simple answers to these questions. And I think he could easily have moved on to chapter 5, verse 1, and said, Now, leaving all that aside, let's rejoice in the justification that is ours in Jesus Christ. And let's enjoy this peace with God and the hope of glory that comes with it. But. He is far too seasoned an evangelist and far too caring a pastor simply to answer these questions with simple, as it were, one-sentence answers. And so he stops, and he stops and he does something that really is marked by great simplicity and extraordinary genius he walks right into the camp of his objectors. And he says, is anybody around here a child of Abraham? And of course, they're all children of Abraham, just like those said to the Lord Jesus, we of Abraham as our father. He is the, he is the father of the circumcised. And Paul says, and I'm sure he was trying not to smile, well then, let's talk about Abraham. And he goes through these four objections that have been raised to his free offer of the gospel in Jesus Christ. And one by one he shows how the gospel he has proclaimed about Jesus Christ is consistent with what the New Testament says about Abraham. And if I'm going to continue, I'm going to have to lean down and get my New Testament, and it's one of the blessings of these microphones that you can do that and still be heard. And so, he's been dealing with this great objection, and it's really marvelous to see how he does it. And, you know, as I said last time, his basic instinct is to say, now, what does the Bible say? what does the Bible say? Now, if you're going to ask that question, you actually need to know what the Bible says. This is actually one of the best arguments Paul could possibly give us for knowing our Bibles well, isn't it? Because we're not able to say to somebody, ah, you're wrong, what saith the Scriptures? If he turns around and says to you, well, what does the Scripture say? And you say, oh, I'm not very sure what the Scripture says. So, that question can be a very dangerous question, but it's also a tremendously important question because he's now able to work through the Scriptures and to show from the Scriptures in this marvelous way how the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is absolutely consistent with the truth of Abraham's life. And he's done this, of course, by saying, as we've already noticed in this Great way, look. Abraham had nothing to boast about. The scriptures say, Genesis 15:6, Abraham was justified by faith. Oh. Not only so, says Paul, but Abraham was justified by faith, not by works. Oh. And not only so, says Paul, Abraham was justified by faith before he was circumcised. Oh, God in heaven justified an uncircumcised man the man to whom we look as our great spiritual father, says Paul. When when was he justified? Was it before he was circumcised or after he was circumcised? Oh, it was way after he was circumcised. And now you see he's he's almost got them into the last corner, but the last corner may be the most difficult corner to dislodge them from. Ah, but they say, Torah. The one thing you can never do, Paul, you can never take Torah away from us. Torah is essential to our acceptance with God, to our being the people of God. We are the children of Abraham. We have Torah. And Paul says, "Psalmist," without them noticing it, I thought we were talking here about Abraham did Abraham have Torah? Oh, you see? It's so simple, and yet in a strange way they couldn't see it. Part of the reason they couldn't see it is because some of their holy books, we call them these days the the Apocrypha. For example, in, in one of their holy books it was written that Abraham had absolutely wonderfully kept the law. And, you know, when you actually add to the Scriptures God has given to you, what you add always becomes the book by which you live. Isn't that true? If you add the key to the Scriptures of Mary Baker Eddy, then that's the book. That's the book. If you add the Book of Mormon, then that's the book. If you add the traditions of the church, then those are the traditions that govern the way in which you read the Bible. And Paul is saying, but what does the Bible say about Abraham? And here in this passage, he puts it so brilliantly. He says the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. That was the promise that Abraham clung to, and God justified him for believing that promise. And of course, ultimately, as Paul explains to the Galatians, the offspring in whom the world would find salvation is our Lord Jesus Christ. He says that didn't come by the law. It came through the righteousness of faith not only so, he says, verse 14, but if it's the adherents of the law who receive the promise, if it's to the adherents of the law that what God has promised to give, if it's to them that that promise comes in its fulfillment, oh dear, oh dear, poor Abram, he was born long before the law, Abraham knew nothing about the law of Moses. Abraham would never have dreamt of Moses. And indeed, says Paul, if that was the case, now follow me, fellow kinsman, Jew, if it's the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs of the promise, verse 14, faith, Abraham's faith, is null. nothing. And the promise is void. It's empty. You see the simple point Paul is making. He's saying God gave this promise to Abraham in his sheer grace. He didn't say to Abraham, Abraham, this is my promise to you if you keep the law of Moses. Moses. Abram would have still been wandering around saying, if I can find the law of Moses, maybe I'll try and keep it. He knew absolutely nothing about the law of Moses. And so here, in this simplicity, the Apostle Paul has made it clear that Abraham was justified not by circumcision, not by obedience to the law, a, because he was justified before he was circumcised, and he was justified by faith in the lord and in his promise hundreds of years before the law was given now you can sense almost a, you can almost sense a panic in that if that's what you've been holding on to for your security then no wonder you would panic at this gospel because it's taking out of your hands the very things by which you think you have been justified Why, it was so sore, and Paul surely understood this, so sore and so painful for some of these people, just as it's painful for people who think that you are saved because you were baptized, or you're saved because you're a church member, or you're saved because you've done your best. It can be an appalling discovery to make that the things that have that you've clung to as justifying you before God, as, as your very identity that enables you to say, yes, I am a Christian, or actually, as people often say, I hope I'm a Christian, to realize that all these things have actually turned into sand, and by clinging to them, you have begun actually on the long way down into the waters that will drown you. I think that's why Paul takes his time here. So I said last time, this is perhaps the least exciting chapter in the early chapters of Romans, but then, you know, when you begin to dig into it, you realize there's an excitement here as well, because Paul is so pastorally dealing with those who so strongly object to his gospel, and he's patiently showing them that they've misunderstood the Scriptures, as people do as people do. I confess I misunderstood the Scriptures for five years. Now, they were the years between nine and fourteen, and you might think, well, who would expect a nine-year-old boy to understand the Scriptures? But a nine-year-old boy, we have plenty of nine-year-old boys in this congregation who well understand the Scriptures. And I thought for those five long years that to be a Christian was to read my Bible every day, which I tried to do, to say my prayers, which I tried to do, and to help old ladies across the street, which I regularly did. And in those days when it was safe to do this, if you were on a bus, to stand up and invite a lady, whatever her age, to take your seat. Now, that's a risky business these days. And I thought that's what it meant to be a Christian. And for five years, I think I missed less than a week in all those years of reading my Bible, reading my Bible, reading my Bible, and I thought that's what it meant to be a Christian. And then when I met people who really were Christians, I remember what a shock it was to me. I have the deepest sympathy and compassion for people who all their lives long have been going to churches thinking that that is what it means to be a Christian, because I did it myself, albeit as a youngster. And I can't imagine what it is like to be sixty years old and to discover that the actual gospel of Jesus Christ says, there are none of your accomplishments that can bring you to the ceiling. And amazingly, you know, it's possible to sit in churches where, where the children will be taught that in children's messages and yet to be sitting at the back of the church thinking, but now I'm this age, I've been able to work my way there and I go to the sacraments, and I attend, and I read my Bible, and I say my prayers, and to, to feel all of those things disintegrating in your hands, and to feel that you've got absolutely nothing to come to Him, and you have to be cast upon His mercy, that can just break a person down. But of course, that's one of the things the gospel of Jesus Christ needs to do to us because notice verse 15, the law, that is, our efforts to be obedient in order to be saved, the law brings wrath. That is why it needs to be by the promise, because if it is by our efforts, I honestly can imagine if we could transport Duff James round the congregations, round Presbyterian congregations in the United States or in the United Kingdom or in Australia or wherever they speak the English language, and we marketed Duff James rubber band gospel. There would be multitudes of congregations where people would sit and think this is really how the children are gripped by this message. What a great message. Aren't these Americans wonderful when they come and visit us, while they themselves would still be sitting in their pews thinking, but yes, thank God it's different for me. It's different for me. And Paul is saying, oh, don't you see? And this, of course, was his argument through from chapter 1 verse 18 to chapter 3 verse 20. All those who seek to win their way to heaven by the law will find that heaven is closed because none of us can keep the law. All of us are undone all of us are condemned by the law. The law only works wrath. My, what a thing it must be to appear before the judgment seat of God, and all your life long you've been sure you've done enough to discover that you've been heading in entirely the wrong direction. There's no way by. No wonder he was concerned for them. And so he says, verse 16, this is so good. He says in verse 16, that's why it depends on faith. Do you see now, he says, don't you see why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace? Now, that's a very strange thing to say if you think about it. Paul, you should really be saying The promise rests on grace so that it can be by faith. You see? But he says it's by faith so that it can be by grace. Why does he say that? It's because he understands that faith is just my empty mouth gasping for salvation, my empty hands. Nothing in my hands I bring. Looking to Jesus Christ alone. You see? Law demands obedience. Failure to law brings wrath. But faith looks to grace, and grace, he says, guarantees the promise. It's amazing, isn't it? You see, really, really, if you're honest with yourself and you're clawing your way up to the ceiling Trying to be acceptable to God, only by a form of self-delusion could you ever think that you were acceptable to God. You couldn't honestly, you couldn't honestly look at your life and say, God accepts this rubbish. Could you? I mean if you were deluded, you could. But if you were if you really had any integrity about yourself you would realize that this holy God can never accept this miserable little life with all its faults and say, that's fine. But when he says, here's the promise, receive it, he's able to say, I guarantee you will be saved. Do you forget those letters? They've stopped sending them to me now, <laughs> I think. Uh, big letters. Dr. S.B. Ferguson. They never seem to be able to spell the name properly. Dr. Ferguson. A check for $10 million <laughs> awaits you. I remember the first time I got one of those. <laughs> And I thought I've heard about this happening to people, but I never thought it would happen to me. And then you begin to read and the print gets smaller and smaller and smaller. If and 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 if Oh to have a letter that said, Dear Doctor Ferguson, ten million dollars has been deposited in your bank account, period, period. All you need to go to the bank and withdraw the money and share it round with your friends in First Presbyterian Church. You see the difference? You see the glory of this if you're a Christian? And you see, you see why it was so important for Paul to say this, that at least at first sight, looks as though it's simply speaking to those who are Jews, to, to say this so that those who were dragging their Judaism in, saying, no, the circumcision's important, saying, saying no, the, the keeping the Torah is important. And he's saying, oh, you dear foolish people, All of this promise was given to Abram by sheer grace before he was either circumcised or knew anything about Torah. Actually, Abram was a total pagan, those of you who follow any Bible study method that takes you through the Bible in a year, and you've, you've just come out of Genesis, haven't you, for, for some of your chapters, and you've been reading about Abram, the thing, I must say, the thing that really gobsmacked me this year was the, the sense, I don't think I've ever seen it as clearly as this before, the man was a total pagan. God, in His grace, came to him and gave him a promise, and He believed that promise, and God justified him. That's why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, yes, it's for the Jew, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham who isn't a Jew. And that means we were here last week, weren't we? That means Abraham is the father of us all. I had great fun last week. Maybe, maybe it was selfish, but I had great fun last week. You remember I said, if you're going out that door and you're shaking my hand, show that you're a Christian believer by saying to me, and Abraham is my father too. I have never in my life shaken hands with so many sons and daughters of Abraham, confessedly so. And here it is. We're all children of Abraham by faith. Not by circumcision, not by our attempts to keep the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist there's something. God gives life to the dead. Sarah's Sarah's body was as good as dead. Abram's body was as good as dead, and God gave life. God called, called what was not, you see, and gave them Isaac, just as a little pointer to the greater Isaac who would come, whose father would Accompany him up the mountain, who would turn to his father and say, Father, we have everything, but where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And his father would say to him, You, my son, are the lamb for the sacrifice. And the very language that's used in that context in Genesis 22 that reappears later on in this letter, as we'll see in Romans 8.32, Isaac was spared by the father who loved him as his only son, because in the place of Isaac, God's only son would be bound to the altar of Calvary, and there he would not be spared but delivered up for us all, that we might be sure that with Christ God guarantees he will give us everything we need for life and salvation. And He's given us a new guarantee. As the bread and the wine come to you this evening from the hands of the elders, really from the hands of Jesus Christ. Take it as your guarantee, not because you are good enough, but because you are not good enough, not because you are religious, but because you are trusting with all your heart in Jesus Christ. And enjoy tonight the grace guarantee, the grace guarantee. Heavenly Father, feed us, we pray, from this table to which we now come. Fill us with joy in believing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.